Welcome to Criminal Sentencing Law, a series of podcasts which examines sentencing processes and law in New South Wales in relation to New South Wales criminal offences. In today's podcast, we will look at what to include in oral submissions on sentence in the local court for adult offenders. This episode has been prepared with regard to the advice of a number of criminal law advocates on sentencing advocacy and what makes a good oral submission on sentence. This podcast is relevant to both the prosecution and the defence in relation to explaining what their objectives are in the sentencing hearing, the various matters that should be addressed, and any applicable law and policies. Before I begin, however, it is important to note that submission styles vary between cases and lawyers, and there is no one rule and format that can be applied to all cases. To start, I want to outline some tips with regard to presentation. Before making a submission, all the evidence that an advocate will rely on should be placed before the court. Oral evidence should be called before written evidence, and the advocate should also give the magistrate a brief outline of the significance of any oral or written evidence. Any written evidence should be provided to the other side. Questions from the bench should be answered concisely and cooperatively, and with an effort to try and assist the magistrate. An advocate should try to be engaging when submitting on sentence and to tell a story. They should communicate courteously with the bench and their opponent and to endeavour to assist the bench in ensuring that all relevant law and evidence are provided to the court for consideration. Submissions should be put to the court in an orderly manner and objective and subjective features should be separated, as should aggravating and mitigating factors. The advocate should make it clear to the judge when they are moving to a different aspect of the case. One way that you construct your sentencing submissions is by thinking about how you would like or expect the judge to set out their judgment on sentence. The advocate should clearly identify to the judge the authorities, in other words the cases and legislation, for a particular position, clearly identify the principles from any cases, and if a case is relied on to a significant degree, have copies on hand. So what are the prosecution's and defence's main objectives in a sentencing hearing? Simply put, for the defence, the objective in a sentencing hearing is to obtain the best result for their client, according to the law. In other words, the result for the client should stand the test of appeal. District Court Judge Stephen Norrish QC recommends that defence lawyers set out the result, in other words, the order or range of orders that is appropriate for the client from the outset. This provides a focal point or a target for the subsequent argument which should be built as a justification for the court taking that approach. When setting out the appropriate order or range of orders, provide clear reasons as to why you are seeking such an order and, if necessary, any legal justifications for the order. Judge Stephen Norrish gives the following example and I quote, It is submitted that a non-custodial order, such as a community service order, is appropriate having regard to the fact that in this case the maximum benefit should be given for the utilitarian value of the plea. The matter can be distinguished from the guideline judgment in X for this or that reason and there are compelling objective factors including a lack of premeditation. His previous good character, steps towards rehabilitation since arrest, restitution made, changes to the prisoner's situation since the offence particularly in relation to matters which contributed to his conduct in the context of the objective features, justify an order such as I have foreshadowed. 
When setting out the anticipated result at the outset, an advocate should dispassionately summarise any objective factors and then highlight key subjective factors. It is also important to briefly state why your matter is different from similar or comparable cases, in principle or in the level of seriousness. Setting out what you want from the beginning may also establish a dialogue between the lawyer and the bench and help shorten the sentencing process. Some lawyers advise against suggesting an appropriate sentence to the magistrate, especially where you are unfamiliar with the magistrate and their attitudes to particular offences, as you may do your client a disservice. On such occasions, it has been recommended that the defence advocate asks the court to extend all leniency that they consider properly available in the circumstances. However, if you hope that the matter is dealt with by a category of sentence, such as a Section 10 bond, then by all means express this to the magistrate. In any case, try and build a rapport with the magistrate and with experience, you will work out their particular style and preferences. Regard should be had by the prosecution to the 2014 High Court case of Barbaro against the Queen. This case restricted the matters on which a prosecutor may make submissions. It was noted by the majority of the High Court in that case that a prosecutor's submissions about the bounds of an available range of sentence is a statement of opinion, not a submission of law. The High Court held that the prosecution is not permitted or required to make any submission on sentencing ranges. The majority stated, To the extent to which McNeil Brown stands as authority supporting the practice of counsel for the prosecution providing a submission about the bounds of the available range of sentences, the decision should be overruled. The practice to which McNeil Brown has given rise should cease. The practice is wrong in principle. Some key implications of the case of Barbara against the Queen is that a prosecutor is not permitted to proffer her or his view about an available range of sentence. On the other hand, the sentencing judge should be properly informed about comparable sentences. In other words, the prosecutors should still refer in their submissions to sentencing statistics and other material indicating what sentences have been imposed in comparable cases, so as to assist the magistrate in determining the appropriate range. Another implication of this case is that an accused may not rely on, and the defence advocate should not refer to, any submission with or representation from the prosecutor as to the available upper range of sentences that should be imposed. The prosecution should be guided by Guideline 28 of the Prosecution's Guidelines when submitting on sentence and presenting evidence in court. This means that the prosecutor should assist the court in applying the law and facts in a fair and appropriate way and fairly test the defence case as required. The prosecutor should do this by informing the court of any relevant case authority or legislation in relation to the appropriate sentence, correcting an opponent's errors and assisting the court to avoid appealable error and referring to relevant official statistics in comparable cases and the sentencing options available. In addition, the prosecution may submit that a custodial or non-custodial sentence is appropriate and may also inform the court of an appropriate range of severity of penalty, including a period of imprisonment, by reference to relevant appellate authority. Where it appears that there is a real possibility that the court may make a sentencing order that would be inappropriate and not within a proper exercise of the sentencing discretion, the prosecution should make submissions on that issue 
particularly if, where a custodial sentence is appropriate, the court is contemplating a non-custodial penalty. The prosecutor also plays a key role in acknowledging and submitting on assistance given to law authorities by the accused for the offence concerned or other offences. Like the prosecutor, the defence advocate must be honest with the court. The defence advocate should not submit matters which are inconsistent with their instructions and represent the client's interests objectively, but also fearlessly. They should emphasise salient aspects of their client's cases and explain those aspects that may not be clear to the court from the statement of facts and any oral evidence submitted. Judge Norrish recommends that reading a critical passage from material relied on to make a point is always an effective means of drawing the material to the judge's attention, rather than leaving her or him to their own devices. Both parties should submit in relation to matters which are relevant to sentencing, including in relation to the purposes of sentencing as outlined in Section 3A of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act as they relate to the facts of the case such as deterrence, rehabilitation, denunciation of the conduct, recognition of the harm done by the offence, and protection of the community. The parties should be explicit about how the evidence presented reflects on the objective seriousness of the offence, as well as subjective factors, and how these may elevate or diminish the penalty to be imposed. Section 21A of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act states that in determining the appropriate sentence for an offence, the court is to take into account the following matters. Firstly, the aggravating factors referred to in subsection 2 that are relevant and known to the court. Secondly, the mitigating factors referred to in subsection 3 that are relevant and known to the court. And finally, any objective or subjective factor that affects the relative seriousness of the offence. Where there is a guideline judgment in relation to a particular offence, close attention should be paid to the guideline judgment. Guideline judgments have been recognised in the case of the Queen against Jurisic as playing an important role in achieving consistency in sentencing. The court said in the case of Jurisic that such guidelines are intended to be indicative only. They are not intended to be applied to every case as if they were rules binding on sentencing judges. Decisions of appellate courts on sentencing are not to be treated as binding precedents. A party may also wish to refer to sentencing statistics, and if doing so, should refer to light cases to the one involved. It is important, however, to recognise that statistics can have their limitations, discussed in the case of the Queen against Bloomfield. Sentencing statistics can be useful, particularly where the sample size is big, to show the range in incidence of particular options. However, as the High Court emphasised in the case of Barbaro against the Queen, what is ultimately sought in consistency of sentences is consistency in the application of relevant legal principles, not numerical equivalence. When referring to the objective factors, parties should acknowledge the maximum penalty for the offence. This represents the legislature's assessment of the seriousness of the offence and provides a sentencing yardstick, as stated in the case of Elias against the Queen. Advocates should also comment on where the legislature has either increased or decreased the sentence, as this reflects the changing level of the objective seriousness of the offence. Where a matter is being sentenced in the local court, magistrates must not regard the jurisdictional limit of their court as some form of maximum penalty, or a penalty reserved for the worst case. This was held in the case of the Queen against El Masri. 
It is also important to inform the court of any standard non-parole periods for the offence and any mandatory minimums that exist. Other important objective features of the case include the circumstances of the offence, such as whether a weapon was used, whether the offence was committed in company, how many victims there were and whether the victims had any vulnerabilities and so on, with reliance placed on the fact sheet. Also, the advocate should inform the court where special circumstances exist and any custodial issues that may be relevant, such as time spent in custody already. Parties need to identify, submit on, and where necessary, provide evidence in relation to the matters contained in Section 21A, including relevant subjective and objective factors and aggravating and mitigating factors. Not every factor in an offence can be classed as one of these extremes, aggravating or mitigating. Some factors sit somewhere in between this binary classification. Also, some features of the case may be classified as both objective and subjective. Subjective features might include, for example, the offender's age, remorse or contrition, relevance of drugs, alcohol or gambling, the offender's education, their employment, their background, their criminal history, any prospects of rehabilitation or likelihood of the crime recurring, or any time spent in custody for the offence. Also, the list of aggravating factors in Section 21A is not exhaustive and does not codify or replace the common law. A court is to take into account any objective or subject features of a crime subject to any common law rule or statutory principle, such as the de Simone principle, which we've already discussed in a previous podcast. That being that the judge cannot take an aggravating factor into account where that factor would have resulted in an aggravated charge compared to that which the accused was convicted of. The matters in sections 21a subsections 2 and 3 are not a checklist. Submission should be made and evidence should be presented at the sentencing hearing in relation to those features that are relevant to a particular case. Just as Howie has stated that a judge who goes through each of the aggravating factors as a checklist is likely to fall into error. It is important to remember propositions relating to fact-finding that derive from the case of the Queen against Albridge. That is, if the prosecution seeks to have the sentencing judge take a matter into account, it is for the prosecution to bring that matter to the attention of the judge and, where necessary, call evidence on it. Also, the prosecution bears a burden of proving any aggravating factor to the standard of beyond reasonable doubt. The defence bears a burden of establishing any mitigating factor and, where necessary, calling evidence on it and to prove the matter to the standard of the balance of probabilities. Also, if the prosecution does not establish a matter to the standard of beyond reasonable doubt, the magistrate does not have to accept the alternative proposition where the defence has not met its burden in proving that matter to the balance of probabilities. Now, just because the prosecution bears the burden of proving aggravating factors doesn't mean that the defence shouldn't make submissions on these factors. As Barrister John Stratton SC advises, and I quote, Deal with the aggravating factors in your submissions. Don't give the prosecution the opportunity to get up and say, but the offender was on bail for other offences at the time. If your client was on bail or on parole at the time he committed the offences, deal with that in your submissions. Your aim is to leave the prosecutor with nothing to say, or at least nothing to say which is not repetitive of what you have already said or irrelevant. Similarly, the prosecution should be prepared to submit on mitigating factors. 
Note that just because there is an understanding between the prosecution and the defence as to submissions that they will make on sentence, this does not bind the magistrate. The magistrate may still make a decision that falls outside of that submitted by the prosecution and the defence. If, however, a magistrate is going to take an aggravating factor into account that is adverse to the defence, the magistrate should inform the defendant that they intend to do so and give the defence an opportunity to make submissions in relation to this. It is also important that the court gives reasons as to why aggravating factors adverse to the offender have been taken into account. This comes from the case of Doolan against the Queen. The magistrate is to identify the relevant factors taken into account, in other words, whether they are accepted or rejected, the weight given to them and their role. However, the court should not allocate a precise percentage that is added or deducted for each factor. So that draws to a conclusion our first podcast on making sentencing submissions in the local court. The following podcast will contain further details in relation to the role of aggravating and mitigating factors. An important point to emphasise is that every case is unique and the length and content of each submission must be judged with the particular circumstances in mind. I can highly recommend that lawyers read the New South Wales Lawyers Practicing Manual, available online via subscription to Westlaw Australia, which contains some excellent advice from barristers experienced in sentencing. Please subscribe to the Criminal Sentencing Law podcast series so that you are up to date with the latest podcasts.